Accutron Watches present The Accutron Show, a time travel through American culture, with your hosts David Graver and Indrani. Visit AccutronWatch.com and discover the brand that has made American history with an all-new proprietary next-generation electrostatic energy movement. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. 2016, we published an, a scientific article showing that if deforestation exceeded 20 25%, and at the same time, global warming exceeded to 2.5 degrees, uh, we would cross the tipping point. The person you heard at the top of the show is today's guest, Nobel laureate Carlos Nobre, one of Brazil's top Earth scientists and member of the Brazilian Academy of Science. But first up, I, Indrani Palchodri, and David Graver are here on a new episode of The Accutron Show. Stay tuned. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open-dial design, combined with an all-new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed. Again. The Accutron Space View 2020. I'm so excited to introduce our next guest. Carlos Nobre has been a huge inspiration for me, and I was fortunate to meet him at Davos to, to interview with him in Brazil in his home office and then to bring him to the Science Summit at the United Nations, our Digital Democracy for Climate Action, which was sponsored by Accutron. Um, there he got to meet with leaders of the Puyanawa tribe, Pue Puyanawa, and his daughter, and it was so beautiful to see the human connection between them, two completely um, people who look completely different and come from very different backgrounds, but have been working their whole lives to protect the Amazon. Working toward the same goal. When did you first become aware of the climate crisis, and why is it so meaningful to you right now? You're so involved in this world. That's a great question. I have spent most of my life working on education, women's rights, fighting trafficking, fighting uh, a lot of the, the cultural ills that we suffer from. And I've come to realize over the last 20 years, seeing the plight of women and children getting worse in so many parts of the world, in my school in India, in Africa, where I was working in the Congo, and, and realizing that climate is to blame for so much of the acceleration of the um, the, the, the challenges that, that are faced by the poorest and by the most vulnerable amongst us. And when we look at, the, at wars, you know, they hurt the, the most vulnerable women and children the most, and they are going to accelerate because of climate action. So I came to realize that unless we address climate head on, all of these other cultural problems are just going to keep increasing no matter what we do. I am inspired by the youngest generations, and I feel like they have information that we've been accumulating for a very long time and are calling for action, calling for action, because ultimately it is the children today that will inherit all of the mistakes that we've made in our own lack of action. Absolutely. And I, I think that 
that filmmakers and storytellers are largely to blame as well because we have failed at imagining futures that inspire young people and scientists and politicians. Everyone is so afraid that they prefer not to think about it. So I think it's important to hear from Carlos the the real facts about climate so that we can have a clear head and and not um, not be afraid to to see what's what's happening to our world. The situation is dire. I, I hope that he shares with us something optimistic, or I hope we are making change, or I hope there is a light that we can be working toward. I, that's my goal with this episode. I think it's the same for you as well. Absolutely. I think hope is very important, but realism as well. And, and recognizing that we all have the capacity to be the heroes that humanity needs, that we're facing the greatest challenge humanity has ever faced. And it's really reigning in our own impulses. Our That's, own consumption, yes, our yes. own relationship to the planet. It's a reevaluation. Yeah, and, and changing the way we we interact. You know, we, we don't have to give up things. We need to do them in a better way. I'm also quite excited about this episode because Carlos is a Nobel laureate. This is the first Nobel laureate for the Accutron show, and that is a profound honor, but it is earned through an immense accolade. His contributions will helpfully, hopefully, change the world. Absolutely. Carlos is he's a, a genius who's spent every moment on on saving the world for for all of life forms. And uh, and, and I think that that is it, it's a true honor to, to get to speak with him. Well, information, inspiration and hopefully a call to action coming up on the Accutron show. Stay tuned. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time for those who blaze new trails. Welcome to our special guest, Carlos Nobre, Nobel laureate, and Earth scientists from Brazil. Welcome to the Accutron Show. Carlos, I have had the great fortune to, to get to meet you in, in many different parts of the world and to talk to you about your wonderful work. I'd love to ask, how did you get this passion and this ability to move people with your science? Well, uh, I think I was very happy that uh, when I was a child, uh, my father, my father in the 1940s, he was a professional soccer player in Brazil. And also he taught me how to play soccer. I was a good soccer player as a child. When I was 12, 13 years old, I was playing in the children's uh, uh, team in in one of the of the soccer clubs uh, in São Paulo city. So, but at the same time, my father was also a poet, and he wrote poems about nature. And he would also take me several times to visit the Atlantic rainforest, not far from where we lived in Sao Paulo city. 
So I was really getting much in love with nature, the forests. And then, uh, but, you know, in my mind at that time, I was planning to become a professional soccer player. But somehow life went the other way. And I I uh, attended a very good uh, uh, institute to do my undergraduate in electronics engineering. So at that time, I start really thinking that I was going to dedicate my life to the environment. Uh, and then after I finished my undergraduate, then I went, I was very lucky. My first job was to work in a research institute in, in the Amazon, in the Brazilian Amazon. And when I was a student, undergraduate student, I had an opportunity with colleagues, classmates, to go twice to the Amazon. We, we spent three weeks in the Amazon in 1971 and also again in 1972. So I had a very good opportunity to get to know the Amazon before the Amazon started being destroyed. The deforestation started increasing tremendously by mid 1970. So 1971, 72, I went there. I could see beautiful forests. Also, we went to the rivers. Anyway, so I was very much motivated. Uh, and then I found this job in in the in the Brazil's National Research Institute of the Amazon. And then I worked there for two years. And then my my boss there, the director of that institute, said, Carlos, I think you should become a scientist, not work only as an engineer. So and then I decided to to do a PhD and they I went to the US 1977 and did my PhD at MIT in meteorology uh, and then I came back January 1983 and then I've been working uh, for the Amazon uh, you know for almost 41 years when did you become acutely aware of the climate crisis and the Amazon's role in the global climate in the global climate ecosystem. Well, when uh, when I started doing my work in the Amazon, I was very lucky to be there in the very first experiment, field experiment. That was August 1983, 40 years ago, in which in partnership with the Wallingford Center uh, of Hydrology at that time, today's Center for Ecology and Hydrology, but at that time was Center uh, for Hydrology. We made a partnership and then we went to a forest in the Amazon and we installed a tall tower, 45 meters tower, the canopy in the Amazon was uh, 33 meter tall. So we installed a lot of equipment in this tower from the ground all the way to the top. And then we start measuring how the forest interact with the atmosphere, uh, how the temperature was changing, 
how uh, transpiration, water vapor exchange, and uh, carbon exchange as well. So that was the very first time we are trying to understand how the forest interacts with the atmosphere in all any tropical forest in the planet. So I was then I start getting very much involved, of course, by uh, 1983, deforestation had exploded, particularly in the Brazilian Amazon. Deforestation really increased, increased tremendously starting by mid 1970s. So at that time, I was really very concerned already. How did you feel when you started to realize the degree to which the Amazon was going to be degraded and, and the, the global effects of that? Well, I, you know, as I said, I started doing it for 40 years. I've been doing research in the Amazon, uh, a lot of this field research, but also I advised uh, several PhD students that did uh, the calculations with climate models what might happen to the Amazon with deforestation, with uh, climate change due to global warming, all those elements. So I was always getting very concerned, very concerned. Uh, for instance, in uh, 2016, we published an, a scientific article showing that if deforestation exceeded 20, 25%, and at the same time, global warming exceeded to 2.5 degrees, uh, we would cross the tipping point. So basically, you know, I was among the scientists working the risks of tipping point. As I said, 1990, I published the first paper. Then uh, in 2016, we are really saying we are very close. We are at the edge of this tipping point uh, because uh, in 2000, uh, now the Amazon deforestation is reaching 17%, and also global warming continues to, to increase the temperature. For instance, the, the UNFCCC, the Climate Convention, released a report a little bit more than a month ago saying that if you just get what all countries in the world compromise during COP27 in Egypt, the, the, their NDCs, uh, nationally determined contributions, how they would reduce emissions of greenhouse gases. If you look at that, the temperature by 2050 would reach 2.4 to 2.6 degrees warmer than pre-industrial uh, era, the, 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 let's say 1950, 1850, 1900. And it's not only projections for the future. Uh, in in 19 in 1999, we started, I was the program scientist for the largest ever uh, scientific experiment in tropical forests. It was called, it's still called, because it still goes on 24 years later, the largest KU biosphere atmosphere experiment in the LBA, the acronym LBA experiment. Uh, and uh, we, uh, these experiments, uh, hundreds and hundreds of scientists uh, for, from all Amazonian countries, but also from the United States, from six European countries, even Japan as well. So basically these experiments show 
that the Amazon is at the edge of this tipping point. All of Southern Amazon, the forest is becoming degraded. Forestation never stops. Degradation increased a lot. Uh, global warming is inducing severe droughts, 2005, 2010, 2015, 16, 2020. And now we are going through a terrible drought in the Amazon now associated with this strong El Nino uh, episode going on now, but also the tropical North Atlantic is very, very warm. And when the tropical North Atlantic is warm, it also induces droughts in the Amazon. So we are going through a terrible moment. Also deforestation, highly deforest areas over Southern Amazon. This is a huge area, about 2.3 million square kilometers from the Atlantic all the way to the Bolivian Amazon. The, that forest is getting very degraded. It's losing carbon. The forest loses more carbon than removed from the atmosphere. So that forest became a carbon source. This is very unique. Globally speaking, all global forests remove one third of all carbon dioxide that we humans, we emit into the atmosphere. And uh, the Southern Amazon has become a carbon source. Tree mortality has increased. The dry season in the last 42 years has become four to five weeks lengthier. The dry season is becoming longer and longer. So it's moving very close to the climate envelope of the tropical savanna. So that's why we are really uh, getting very concerned and we are working hard to demonstrate that we need to get immediately to zero deforestation, zero forest degradation, zero wildfires. And then we launched during the COP27 in Egypt, the project called a policy brief called Arts of Restoration. So how to create very large scale forest restoration initiatives in the Amazon to restore huge area, the forest degraded, and then hopefully when the secondary forest grows and the secondary forest in the tropic, tropical forest grows very fast. So it removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but also it increases the water recycling, reduces two, three degrees the temperature. So if the, there is large scale forest restoration uh, we are particularly in the southern Amazon and also along the Andes, the Andes uh, in the countries of Peru, Ecuador, and uh, Colombia. That's the area with the largest biodiversity in the planet. Amazon has the largest biodiversity, and within the Amazon forest, that's the area with the largest biodiversity. Terrible deforestation there associated with oil exploration, mostly with illegal mining. So there also we have to re restore the forest there to protect biodiversity and restore huge areas southern Amazon. So at COP28, we are going to go back there to try to demonstrate to all countries how important it is to create a tremendously large scale of forest restoration, restoring more than 50 million hectares. And if we succeed in, in doing that, along with getting to zero deforestation, degradation, and fires, 
it may be possible that we save the Amazon. We hope it will be something that we have to dedicate a lot of effort engaging all, all Amazonian countries, getting support by the rich nations to, to fund these new nature-based solutions for the Amazon. Carlos, in a recent article that you published in the journal Nature, you discussed the Belém Declaration about eight countries coming together to potentially save the Amazon. Is that possible? Is that a bright light of hope in the future? Yes, for sure. We had recently uh, in the in the Amazonian Brazilian Amazonian city of Belém in August, early August, we had the 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 Amazon countries summit, and uh, all all the eight countries. Uh, got together there for a week and they signed an agreement in which they understand the risks in, in, in fact I mean in the final statements for in four paragraphs they mention the Amazon is very close to a tipping point so there is a sign they recognize what science has been saying as I said 33 years we published the first scientific article on that so when they are talking about a joint action to immediately combat the environmental crime, which is all uh, all being a serious risk to the Amazon, uh, this or organized crime is responsible for land grabbing, for all the illegal mining, almost all mining in the Amazon is completely illegal. Also, drug trafficking, uh, illegal selected logging. So everything there is very serious. So the countries also agree uh, initiatives to combat the organized crime and also uh, many initiatives to value the indigenous people, local communities, to value also their knowledge. Indigenous people have been living in the Amazon for 12,000 years. And they always maintain the forests standing there. Always the indigenous people, for instance, they have used more than 2,000 products from the forest for their well-being, uh, medicinal plants, food systems, textile, infrastructure, everything uh, from the forest, always maintaining the forest. And, uh, and also local communities, the Afro-descendant communities, the riverine communities, they always maintain the forest, they maintain also the aquatic ecosystems. The illegal gold mining is uh, bringing a tremendous risk for the aquatic ecosystem because they use mercury. So this mercury goes into the water, is bringing a terrible uh, future for the aquatic ecosystem. But also now, because they methyl mercury goes up in the in the uh, species uh, animal species in aquatic systems and goes up all the way to the uh, fishes that they are the food system of the indigenous populations also a number of indigenous populations but also amazonian urban populations uh, who eat a lot of fish they have exceeded the level of methyl mercury in their bodies very dangerous for the health so we are really have all those uh, challenges. Carlos, thank you so much. This has been informative and inspiring so far. We're going to take a break 
and we'll be right back. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our legacy collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron watches from the 60s and 70s, the Legacy Collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of Swiss watchmaking, each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces. The Accutron Legacy Collection, inspired by the past, built for your future. We're back with Carlos Nobre, Nobel Prize winner and extraordinary scientist from Brazil who has spent most of his life working on the problem of how do we protect the Amazon. Carlos, we, we had such a wonderful time with you at the Science Summit at the United Nations that uh, was actually sponsored by Accutron. And I was so excited to see all kinds of diverse leaders coming together to, to support the, the work that you're doing in the Amazon. What, what would you say is the most important steps that people can take to, to help in this process? Well, globally speaking, I think, uh, let's say the, the real economic world, the consumers of the planet, people have to, to pay attention that they should not really encourage Amazon deforestation, Amazon degradation, uh, for instance, if global consumers started really not accepting products exported from the Amazon, which led to deforestation degradation, I think that would be very important. Uh, but of course, this is not only for for uh, other countries uh, outside of the Amazon, I mean, most of the products produced in the Amazon are consumed in the Amazon countries. For instance, 75% of the beef produced in the Brazilian Amazon is consumed in Brazil. So all consumers in the world, they have to see the how important it is, the so-called sustainable, responsible consumption. Carlos, you've earned one of the most profound awards for your work, a Nobel Prize. Can you tell me what it was like to receive the Nobel Prize and how it changed your life, or did it change your life? Well, you have to, to keep in mind that the Nobel Prize at that year, 2007, was given not to me personally, but it was given to the IPCC fourth assessment report. I was one of the authors of the assessment report. We were about 200 authors and uh, all of them, all of us, uh, we were awarded this Nobel uh, Peace Prize. And I think it was very important uh, because the fourth assessment report, IPCC's fourth assessment report was a report that said how critical climate change was, the risks how important it would be to protect the planet for really creating a, a sustainable future, how we are making the planet going to a tremendous risk, uh, even, even for our human lives. Uh, so I think, you know, it was good. But of course, I was in the, in the, I was one of the authors of the chapter on uh, South America, 
And then I was one of the authors who wrote the, the points there related to tropical forests, particularly about the Amazon. So we also raised the risks that the Amazon was under due to global climate change, to land use change. So I think, you know, it was the IPCC, that IPCC report deserved the Nobel Peace Prize because it was a report, disruptive report. We said, you know, we cannot move in this direction. That was 2007. Unfortunately, we are uh, 16 years later and the risks for the Amazon continue. For the youngest generation that is going to inherit this planet, if they're active, can they be optimistic? Is it okay to be optimistic about the future if you take a, if you take a step up and contribute and and try to make the world better? Well, it's not. Uh, it, 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 there is no other solution. Uh, we have to to trust that the younger generation they will have a much different attitude than my generation. My generation was a generation in which scientists from my generation showed the risks we are putting the planet on. So, but we did not do much to change. We continued, you know, increasing emissions of greenhouse gases. We continued increasing deforestation, particularly in tropical countries. And uh, so the new generation, really, uh, it's difficult to say, uh, you know, they are optimistic, but they don't have any other choice. They really have to drastically change the way we behave in all areas, in all sectors. Uh, our cultural values have to change to protect nature, to protect all uh, traditional populations, indigenous people, local communities all over the planet. Uh, so this is a big challenge. Uh, of course, uh, when I compare the cultural attitudes of my generation with the young generation now, I see they are much more concerned they are much more worried. They believe much more in science. But on the other hand, they are. this is also bringing a tremendous uh, mental challenge for them. Uh, this, uh, even the level of suicides among very young teenagers is increasing in many parts of the world. This is associated with many young generations Many of the young generation are seeing the risks, the challenges. So we really have to contribute to that. The economic, social system of the planet has really to pay much more attention to what is the legacy that we are uh, producing for the next generation. Just to give you one data, one figure, uh, a baby born in 2020, even even if we reach the Paris Agreement targets, will uh, be affected by close to 30 heat waves in his, her life expectancy of, let's say, 85 years. Someone born in 1960 only 
will face five heat waves. Look at the difference, five heat waves and the, the young generation, uh, 30 heat waves. So just to give you the, the big challenge, why the, also the, this young generation, they are becoming very affected mentally, uh, psychologically, because of these tremendous risks, they are going to be living in a planet under tremendous risk. So, but they will have in their hands in a few years, one, two decades, they will be the generation under control of all economic systems, social systems. So let's hope that they will certainly see that there are solutions. Science has shown a lot of solutions, but there has to be very fast implementation of the solutions. Carlos, this episode has definitely been a call to action for many. Thank you for your time and thank you for sharing this information with us. Thank you. I thank you for the opportunity and congratulations on this very important uh, discussions that you bring forth because we really, we have to make all humanity very aware, particularly the young generation, uh, that we can save the planet, but we need immediate action globally. Thank you so much, Carlos. You are such a source of inspiration for all of us. And I, I can't wait to see how we can collaborate to, to make the changes that, that need to happen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To listen to all of our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. Remember to check out our special edition Accutron products in collaboration with La Paulina Cigars, Estabrook Pens, Asseline Publishing, and Stave Puzzles. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at Accutron Watch. From New York City, until next time, Accutron Time. This is Bill McCuddy. <laughs>